everybody. Welcome to Comedy on Vinyl, episode 174, part one. Uh, this is Richard Levinson, who uh, you will know, maybe, as uh, the, if you listen through <laughs> at the end of every episode, he composes our theme song. Um, he is uh, a fixture of Los Angeles's Sacred Fools Theater. Uh, he's, he's always writing stuff for them. He's always writing. Um, he even, I found out uh, during this episode, uh, got some things submitted and published in National Lampoon Magazine. Uh, a few times back in the day, and he wanted to talk about National Lampoon's Gold Turkey, and I hadn't heard it before because I wanted to discover them through the lens of the people who like them um, and who pick them. We had a lot of fun. He actually at one point asked me, so what's our time limit? And I said, we don't really have one because uh, this day we didn't. So we talked for almost two hours, so that is why this is a two-part episode. Um, so you get your regular clips, of course, and then, uh, you know, eventually we sort of end this episode you know, uh, a little earlier than a, a typical episode, but it's about at the halfway mark. And next week, we'll uh, revisit the album uh, with number two. And it gives us the opportunity, of course, to put more clips in because if this was a longer single episode, I would just put the uh, clips at longer interval intervals. So at the end of the day, you're actually getting more clips of the original album. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. So much to wade through because this, it's a lot, you couldn't make a lot, I know that's the, the typical thing people say, I normally disagree with it, but you could not make a lot of this stuff now just because it's very sensitive and, uh, you know, some of the stuff is nothing I would necessarily make, but, you know, with perspective, it's, it's definitely at the very least interesting to listen to. So, enjoy part one of my conversation with Richard Levinson on National Lampoon's Gold Turkey. <music> Jason Klom, and this is the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. The year is 1975. The album is Gold Turkey. The artist is the National Lampoon. It is a greatest hits album. My guest is Richard Levinson. Thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And if you don't know Richard's name from his work, you know his name from the end of the podcast because he composed uh, the, the song that we use as our theme song each week. <laughs> That's right. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Uh, big time. Because <laughs> that was one thing where not only was I like, I <clears throat> had people say like, you know, your, your podcast kind of starts off a little like rough. Like all of a sudden just you're talking. I'm like, well... Isn't that fun? They're, no, no, no. You should have a theme. So, thank you. You're welcome. <clears throat> it's very kind of you. And it's a great song. It's actually called Smile for the Smile Camera. Smile for the Camera. That's right. See, I, I'm going off the MP3 name, so that's where my brain is. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Smile yeah, for the It actually camera. has lyrics. It was written originally for a uh, for a little show at the Sacred Fools Theater here in town. We do a mm-hmm. show called Serial Killers where we do yeah. little sketch shows at night. And I had a show called the Uncle Buddy LaSalle Show, which mm-hmm. is an old washed up vaudevillian oh, yeah, getting, his, that, yeah. getting his first shot at, mm-hmm. uh, at showbiz. And uh, so he had, a, he had a theme song called Smile for the Camera, which made no sense because he was on the radio. Right, right. right. That's fantastic. With the advent of, of eBay and all of the other online of availabilities, almost nothing is rare anymore. Oh, you can right. find anything anywhere, and nothing has, there's no, there's no premium for expertise. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows mm-hmm. what everything costs. Yep. And so it's like, you know, it's very difficult to be like a dealer in something now. I know. Because you can't go scouting around some basement right. and find some rarity that no one's ever heard of because someone in Boston already has three copies of it and selling yep. them for a buck and a half. That's the thing I was thinking about that today is like collectors like myself get priced out because I'm in no way rich. But yeah. like, let's say the new Star Wars comes out and like they release some really awesome, like I'm not going to get some awesome limited edition thing for like a, a real cheap price point because they know what it's worth immediately the right. second they exactly. release it, you know? So it's like, that's why I don't collect much. I'm, my apartment might say otherwise, but I collect really cheap shit. 
you know. Oh sure, but and I guess and, and that's what I'm saying is that even even if you find something that's really rare, mm-hmm. I have found you know I, years and years ago I put out little 45s of my own and, and mm-hmm. odd, odd little goofy records, and if, if I Google the name of the record, mm-hmm. I will find. The first three pages will be online collections and stores mm. of people wanting to sell my uh, my my co- my colored disc of "Don't Drop the Bomb on My Boyfriend" backed with the Brezhnev Boogie. It's, it's a ten-inch <laughs> color disc that, awesome. that that I think they printed up two hundred and fifty copies of uh-huh. back in nineteen eighty-one. Yeah, and if I put the title "Don't Drop the Bomb on My Boyfriend" in. Mm-hmm. Those someone will have those and they'll be selling them yeah. for seven dollars. So crazy! Like, it's it's really weird and it's like I, I haven't seen them or heard of these in thirty or forty years. Yeah, and there they are. They're Do you even right have there. one in your own collection or not? Somewhere you in a box in my garage, I probably have. Yeah, I have one of the black ones and one of the colored ones. Yeah. and uh, it's, I think it was blue vinyl. He, I think he did a couple in red vinyl. I think he did one square. This awesome. this was a weird guy who had a record company down in South Central Los Angeles somewhere. Uh-huh. And he put out colored vinyl records of odd and odd sizes, like it was a ten-inch record too. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I, you know, and uh, uh, Barry Hansen had, uh, of course, had a copy of it. I That's gave him one. So good. And uh, he used to live in Sherman Oaks, and I used to once in a while go over to his house with something that I thought was the most amazing thing I'd find. Uh-huh. And he'd go, I have two of those. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> I had a feeling. Oh my god, that's. I gotta say, like, I, I know it's not ever gonna happen for me, but like. That man's collection is something I just long to he see. He had to move out of his house, and the reason he did right. it is that the collection was too heavy. I mean, at least that's what he told me. He lived, he lived in a that. bungalow in Sherman Oaks, and, and he had 250,000 records in, in his house, and it was, it was causing problems with the foundation of his house. Good Christ. Yeah. Wow. I mean, those old ones are heavy as shit, so, I mean, that makes sense. Good God. That's 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 an obsession. And he could probably put his finger on any one of them too. Oh that, yeah, that, that was the, that's the really weird thing about it. It's so crazy. I mean, that's that's the kind of brilliant mind you're dealing with, you know. Yeah. Um, let's talk about this album. So number yes. one, why did you pick Gold Turkey? Uh, well, we were talking about what albums to pick, and and I think uh, there are well, first of all, a little history about the Lampoon might be might be uh, worthwhile to, yeah. to tell you why I picked this record. Uh, I was in high school when the Lampoon came out. I'd always been as a lot of kids in my generation have been a huge Mad Magazine fan. Mm-hmm. And when the National Lampoon first came out, and I call it the National Lampoon, sure, because many because to us it was just the magazine. And many years later, the company got sold three or four times, and yeah. it, it became National Lampoon, which each time it got sold, it meant less and less and less and less right. to, to the point where now it means nothing. <laughs> uh, but it was there was nothing else, and so once a month this magazine would arrive. And really, people would sit four or five at a time, pouring over their shoulders, <laughs> reading, and the names became almost magical. These names, Doug Kenny, Michael, O'Don- Michael O'Donohue, of course, uh, Sean Kelly, Tony Hendra, they, I mean, uh, Ann Beats, who's still around mm-hmm. town here. Uh, these names, you actually, you, you had almost a, a relationship with the masthead. Yeah. And uh, Gerald Sussman was one of the funniest writers ever. And so... It, it was it was almost like a religion. I mean, you really wait because there was nothing on TV. There was no yeah. Simpsons. There were no South Park. There was nothing. Yeah. So uh, when they began to branch out into some corollary products, the first one they did were some special issues of the magazine. There was a magazine uh, uh, called the Encyclopedia of Humor, and then they did this enormous piece of work called the 1964 high school yearbook parody mm-hmm. which you have to get and you have to read and you'll be reading it 30 years from now and you'll still find new things in it yeah, yeah, yeah. So one it, it, i think newsweek said it was like the 
the greatest collaborative satiric work that had ever been done. It's amazing. really amazing. Doug Kenny essentially wrote it along with P.J. O'Rourke. So they began branching out mm-hmm. into these products, and one of the things they did, they wanted to put up a, uh, a stage show, so they put th- together this show, Lemmings. Right. And Lemmings was put up at the, at the, uh, um, the, the uh, Village Gate Theater in New York. The first half was just a sketch show, and it didn't do very well. It mm-hmm. really wasn't that funny. But the second half was this parody of Woodstock. And the guy who I, to this day, I work with occasionally, Maddie Simmons, who was the publisher of The Lampoon, uh, he may not have been a, a big creative force in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the organization, but he was an incredible picker of talent. Uh-huh. So in that first cast of Lemmings was Christopher Guest and Chevy Chase and John Belushi and Gilda Radner. And... These people did this show, Lemmings, and then there was a show called The National Lampoon Show, mm-hmm. which followed it up, and Belushi was in that. When he stayed in New York, that role was taken over by Meatloaf. And, and uh Jim um, is his piano player. Uh, let me just case me right now. I saw them in Ann Arbor, Michigan, doing that show. Meatloaf before you ever knew him, even from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wow. uh, the, 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 the breadth of talent that Maddie brought in, both in the magazine as writers, and then later... Even more so on the in the showbiz side as they branched out, was important. They wanted to stay together, and because of because of a rift that occurred between a couple of the writers, mm-hmm. uh, and this has been written about a lot, so I don't think I'm going talking out of school here. But Tony Hendra and Michael O'Donoghue had been the co-creators of the first album that they did, which was Radio Dinner. Yeah, and because of some personal issues, they had a major rift, and. Uh, Michael O'Donoghue was not the kind of person to forgive anybody, and he was very important to the magazine. He threatened to quit if he wasn't given some sort of a project. Okay. This is my understanding, anyway, okay. exactly how this works. So they had an idea that Tony Hendra went off and took care of Lemmings, and he and Sean Kelly wrote most of the songs for Lemmings and put that together. Mm-hmm. And they gave Michael O'Donoghue this idea of doing a radio half hour, a radio hour, which became a half an hour. And uh-huh. Maddie, being a salesman, thought of it as a way to sell advertising and sure. get it syndicated to all of these radio stations, 600,000 radio stations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they had a huge college readership anyway, so they thought this was this was a perfect idea. Here, then, with all its socio-religious thematic overtones and psycho-political undercurrents intact, we are proud and yet, in a way, humble to present Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Everybody get out of here! There's a lobster loose! Oh, holy cow, he's loose! Everybody get out of here, he's vengeful! Quickly, cover yourselves with hot butter and carry lemons just in case! You have to squirt them with him and so forth and repel them! Everybody get out of here quickly, there's gonna be a tragedy! Oh, God! <gasps> ha! This is Roger DeSwans asking you to join us again next week for another classic of the contemporary theater on Fontreau Center. Good night. Donahue was an obsessive, though he was a terrific writer, so he actually had them transform an entire floor of the building up above where the magazine was or below mm-hmm. into a radio studio that made it look like a 1930s radio studio. Oh he hired a very famous, uh, at the time, voiceover person named Wendy Craig, okay. who did all the announcements and the, the, uh, the ins and the outs and the promos, and you okay. see him with a picture in the back of the album there. And then they began to write audio comedy. Uh, that was, you know, just 
the, the, that was just as funny as the magazine and just as dangerous in some in right. some ways. Right. Um, it was so hard that O'Donohue, as obsessive as he was, uh, he got burned out after a year. So the second year they were on, John Belushi took over as as the uh, as the second year creative manager or, or, wow. or creative director of the of the whole thing. And when you look at the back of the album, you see this this just enormous cast of characters that were, that were put together by. Well, you see Bill Murray, you see Brian Doyle Murray, you see Ann Beats, you see there's Christopher Guest, uh, there's Gilda Radner, Richard Belzer, of course, uh, um, Doug Kenny. Uh, oh, and there, oh, who over here in the corner is Harold Ramis. Yeah. Uh, who had just started working there, and and he had come down from Second City in, in uh, Toronto, mm-hmm. and uh, that was his first relationship with Doug and with. My, my other former friend Chris Miller, and they ended up writing Animal House under under Maddie's sort of you know he, he forced him into a room and said sit in the room for two years and write Animal House, <laughs> um, you know. And Harold Ramis has said that he just thought he was arriving at a time where he was going into Valhalla. He'd walked into yeah. a room with the funniest people on the planet, and mm-hmm. he got to sit there and do it. So we think of Harold Ramis as you know has sort of outgrew all of that in of our course, in our yeah. imaginations, but he was just he was. Like a kid in the candy store, <laughs> sitting there with my, with O'Donohue and with Doug Kenny, so there have been a number of collections later on of all of the National Lampoon Radio Hour mm-hmm. things. It didn't last very long. It was very expensive to produce. It wasn't generating a lot of revenue. It was also very hard to keep the quality up. I mean, to do sure. the amount of stuff that they did and the intense production that they did, which we'll hear, it was really difficult to get it. Um that good every week right. so it got cut from an hour to a half an hour they made a joke about how the 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 fascists had had cut them off <laughs> and they could on the air they you know they 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 said that they couldn't go any longer at gunpoint or something um and uh and then it just sort of it just petered out just as a as a financial yeah uh eventual thing and then within a couple of years michael o'donoghue quit the magazine and became the first head writer along with his then either girlfriend or wife Ann Beats, mm-hmm. the first head writer for Saturday Night Live. Yeah, and basically invented SNL. Right. For the next two or three years, when I first saw SNL, I just saw all of these names I already knew <laughs> right. from the Lampoon. Mm-hmm. And most people of my generation did. You saw Brian McConaughey, for example, was one of the early writers at uh, SNL, and mm-hmm. he had been on. You see him in this picture. He'd been yeah. a writer at the Lampoon. So I, to me, it was just like they had shifted the National Lampoon and put it on TV. Mm-hmm. Maddie has never gotten enough credit, right? Uh, for you know, Lauren Michaels has taken an enormous amount of credit for inventing yeah. the modern world of no. <laughs> uh, Tony Hendry in one of his books said that by the time SNL came out, the ten-year humor revolution was over. Yeah. yeah, it had already been done, and now it was finally showing up on TV. Right, right. But uh, so, the fact that this came out the same year, I think, as SNL started, seventy-five. This this record, this was just a a, a smattering of some of the stuff that they thought would work well. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of things on the radio hour that were much more dangerous and, and to our ears right now maybe even a little bit uh, disrespectful or, or politically incorrect. They, sure. There was a very funny piece that was voiced by Chevy Chase and I think Doug Kenny probably wrote it but I can't say this for sure called George Washington Carver and the Electrical Peanut. Oh shit. And it was... <laughs> And it was all done in the most horrible black voice, uh-huh. and it was like an Amos Andy thing. But because of the spirit that they brought to it, mm-hmm. it was satiric. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. not racist. Yeah. But today, if you played it on the radio without any kind of context sure, or any of kind of times, 
you would have you and I think rightly so people would be upset we live yeah. in a different time now yeah so there's a lot of things that were on the radio hour that would uh, that didn't end up in this collection but there have been various box sets of the entire two seasons of the radio Jesus. hour I, I think I owned one once um, on um, cassettes and a lot of the stuff you mentioned when we were talking earlier you mentioned the album uh, that's not funny that's sick uh-huh that was an album that was done much less by the Lampoon writers who had been there and more by the second generation of performers like Bill Murray okay, who was yeah. very central to that to that album mm-hmm. and the later stuff in the radio hour sort of comes out of that that school it's kind of a second right. generation of lamp, Lampooners mm-hmm. they weren't so much magazine writers going over doing uh, doing radio humor they came out of improv they came yeah. out of Second City they were already stage performers that makes sense and so they were doing stuff that felt more comfortable as a presentational comedy yeah. and less uh, parody and satire that came out of a, a, a kind of a, a literary background which was the yeah. Original intent of the two or three years, the first four or five years of uh, of the National Lampoon. It's crazy. That kind of evolution is 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 fascinating, and it's it's not something I I don't think that would have worked for TV, uh, which is why I guess SNL was perfect because they were ready to not jump ship, but ready to evolve from whatever. Yeah, and my this understanding was. was that Maddie was approached at one time or another during the during those first three or four years from the when the magazine was very popular mm-hmm. with college students, and I I almost have to remind people that once again that. There was nothing else. I mean, right around the... Uh, All in the Family even came out like two years after the okay. Lampoon had yeah. started. I mean, yeah. uh, basically, we were still coming out of Green Acres, and the most dangerous <laughs> stuff on TV was laughing. And as much as I love them, the Smothers Brothers. Yeah. But, it, but I mean, it, there was nothing of this... And, and Mad Magazine was, was very instructive and funny, but it wasn't very harsh. Sure. Yeah, the yeah, Lampoon yeah. was much, much... You know, it was it was much more pointed, much more sophisticated, and sometimes raw, dirty, and and angry. Yeah. Uh, so, the the fact that there was nothing there for us at all, and this came out every single week, mm-hmm. made it uh, really felt that there was a huge generational difference. So, when Maddie, I guess, was approached, he told me this anyway, that he was approached to do um, the TV show. He said they were just too busy. They mm-hmm. they they had the magazine going, they had the stage shows going, they had the radio show going. There was only a certain amount of talent. They, they, they. Yeah. So when SNL came out a couple of years later, and Michael Donahue was the was the head writer for it, uh, I don't think Maddie ever felt felt betrayed because sure. they already they they already split up the relationship. But I do think that um, it wasn't as revolutionary as it has been portrayed. Right. It was in the works one way or the other for a long time, mm-hmm. and Lauren Michaels happened to already be in TV and happened to know some of these writers and stuff. And was able to kind of put the pieces together, and then let them do what they were already doing for right. this generation of people. That's a good producer. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's, that's right. You know, yeah. I mean, there's the I, that that is that is his role. You know, yeah. he's a producer well, only. It, Tony Hendra, who's gotten in some trouble some other for some other things, but he's he was a good writer. He wrote a book called I believe it was called um, Going Too Far. I believe it was called. Okay. Uh, it was all about underground humor from the '50s through the '70s, including the Lampoon. And he said, you know. That Lauren Michaels was was running around saying uh, TV doesn't speak to our generation. TV doesn't speak to our generation. To which Tony Hendricks said, "Good, turn it off." <laughs> like, so, so what? But that's not the way you know. We we that's not the way the world of commerce works. Yeah. You know? So uh, 
someone else said, I'm not sure whether he said or someone that nothing is real in America until it appears on TV. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it was even though millions of people read the Lampoon and, and the and the pastor readership was probably. 10, 12 people per copy at mm-hmm. colleges, and they had the radio shows, and they had the albums and stuff, they were still reaching maybe three or four million people. Yeah. So even a low-level TV show would completely expand the sure, amount sure. of, you know, the first couple of years of SNL, the cast didn't want to do, they didn't want to do re- re- recurring characters. Yeah. They wanted to be a satiric show. I read one time that the Coneheads only had like three appearances. Whereas twenty years later, the cheerleaders <laughs> had like twenty-five yeah, yeah, yeah. appearances. So, Holy crap. it you know they honed their they eventually honed the show to appeal to the way TV works, mm-hmm. rather than using TV as a medium to bring destructive satire. Yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, but I mean, getting back to your original question, I've sure. I've, I've talked too long about that. But <laughs> but that's that this collection grew out of all that, and that's why you this 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 big this big uh, graduating class picture you've yeah, got here of amazing. all these people. Uh, and all these amazing people, sure, um, that the, they had been working their way through either through the magazine or through the stage shows like Christopher Guest, um, or or uh, the uh, um, or the Radio Hour itself, where they first got pulled in and had some experience in radio, like Wendy Craig. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a comedian; he was a regular voiceover guy. Yeah, but he's the guy with the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they wanted to make it real, which they had done in the magazine. That was the whole point of the magazine too. After the first couple of, they brought in a new art director and said, "If you're going to do parody, you have to make it sound like it's not parody. Yeah. You have to make it sound real." Yeah. And in the magazine, they did the same thing. It has to look like real Playboy mm-hmm. for it to be a funny fake Playboy. You can't make goofy pictures. Mm-hmm. It has to look like it's real. And that was O'Donoghue's mission here was to make all the production sound like it was real 1930s or later radio, yeah. so that. The incongruity of it being funny or satiric <laughs> was all the more precise because it sounded right. Yeah, it, it's it's. Uh, I mean, just for example, even just the uh, the coffee ad with uh, Chevy Chase, he plays it so it's so upsetting because of how straight he plays it. It's like this is funny, but this is disturbing as fuck. And, and you understand the the genesis of that bit, right? I don't actually. I'm assuming there's an ad or something else that I that I've missed. Well, so there's some context um, that's the, totally. My husband's a writer, and if I didn't make him a perfect cup of coffee, I don't think he would conk me on the head with an omelet pan or shove me down the coal chute. But coffee is important. It's, yes, it's important to him. That's him in the other room, writing. I'm a writer, and I drink a lot of coffee. So I want my coffee to have that rich, full-bodied flavor. My wife knows this. Now, I'd never hit my wife or lock her in the onion cellar if she didn't make a perfect cup of coffee. But she knows that I demand that true coffee taste. And that's why I only allow one brand in our house. Better coffee than this, there isn't. I'm putting another pot of coffee on the sink. That's a direct satire of Patricia Neal coming back after a stroke. Mm-hmm. This isn't the kind of humor that you would see nope. on, you know, on the Carol Burnett show. Sure. 
um, and and so they they're making fun of a woman who had just had a stroke, mm-hmm. who can't recognize the difference between a cup of coffee and a magazine. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that, well, I and I you know, that would that's so interesting because my take on it was totally without that context. It just seemed like an abused wife. That's really all. It seemed like a woman who had been beaten senseless, and it's like still upsetting. Don't get me wrong, but that. That is borderline cruel, if not. Oh, it's it's beyond cruel. it's be, it's it's beyond cruel, and and actually, I mean that makes me a little uneasy now as an older person. Mm-hmm. But I was twenty, yeah. twenty one when I and I thought this is hilarious. Sure, I got the joke. They they didn't they kind of grew a little bit out of a of a seventies or sixties even some of them not all of them mm-hmm. but uh, an, an idea that this is going to sound kind of gross but I think either Jerry Rubin or Abby Hoffman of the Yippies said. What you want to do is stick your thumb up their ass and don't tell them why. And it's the don't tell them why that's the important part. Yeah. Uh, you know they they you know uh, you you either you either get a, a, the R. Crumb had a very famous cartoon one time called Meatball, uh-huh. where you either got hit in the head with a meatball or you didn't. <laughs> and if you got hit in the, head in the meatball, then you got it. And mm-hmm. if you didn't, you didn't. And you could ask for the meatball to hit you. But the, the Andy's got a big smiley meatball saying, that's not how a meatball works. <laughs> and and I think that they felt that anything was fair game yeah. if it came from this other world that they were trying to essentially destroy. Sure. They were, they were, uh, some of them were, were, were really, really radical in that way. Mm-hmm. The second generation, the Bill Murrays and stuff, were much more interested in the craft and the comedy and I think were more gentle. Mm-hmm. They could be very cruel too, but they, I don't think they would have gone at it with a sense of, that same sense of purpose. Yeah. Michael O'Donoghue, I mean, even the the cover of his book, Mr. Mike, which is his biography, shows him standing there with this just gigantic butcher knife that's about this big. <laughs> and he said a couple of times, he if he hadn't been a if he hadn't been a humor writer, at some point he thought he might have been a murderer. Jesus. He was a very very angry person. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, and, and apparently apparently Ooh. for some people a very unpleasant person. But uh-huh. but but you know uh, he was he was and he doesn't appear in this picture because. Apparently, at this point, he had just blown up and left, and he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. But uh, so there's, there's John Belushi was the second year uh, manager of the, of the project. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so so when you when you know that kind of that what they're satirizing, yeah, you even get a better sense of what uh, of what their purpose was in putting this stuff together. For sure. And I'm not sure everyone even got the joke back then. But if you saw the Patricia Neal commercial, yeah, then you would. Uh, would have rung a bell, I wouldn't obviously. kill my wife. I wouldn't kill my wife if she gave me a bad cup of coffee. But you know, <laughs> you want coffee, and that's and then again, that was that's probably Gilda Radner doing that. I, I can't say. For yeah, sure. I was wondering. Yeah, I didn't. I, I didn't check that. Yeah. Um, so all right, so it ran from November '73 mm-hmm. only to December of '74. Right. That's crazy. That's crazy. But they had enough material now. So this is released in '75. This is probably released then. Before we knew who the standouts on SNL were going to be, so that's interesting too. Uh, it? Probably was released before. It, it, it certainly was put together before you even knew who the uh, who the cast of SNL was going to yeah. be. Yeah, I'm, I'm guessing if you if you see John Belushi here. In fact, um, I'm trying to find. I have the SNL album because we just discussed it the other day because it was released the same year. But I'm guessing within enough months that like all of a sudden. These people were way important. They were there, yeah. you know, cover the album this time. Actually, that my husband, I'm looking right now, the my husband thing you're talking about, it was not Gilda Radner, it was an actress named Patty Maison, who I don't know, but it, but it was written by Brian McConaughey, okay. who became an SNL writer the first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have a favorite track off this album? Let's well, I think, I think 
people have different favorite tracks. There's a couple of short ones. There's a jingle that Christopher Guest wrote with Ann Beats called um, uh, My Favorite Juices, Mother Gooses, Sweet Potatoes, Sparkling Wine. Because back then, again, there, was a, there were all these kind of pop wines coming out, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, and these, these sort of, uh, I'm not quite, it wasn't Matus so much, that was, this is after Matus, but they were like basically soda pop wines for, for kids to, to uh-huh. get, get hooked on. <laughs> and so they, they wrote that. I think the one that, that most people I know always point to as the singular work of production genius mm-hmm. is The Immigrants, is the, yes. the, the yeah. long one at the end. And uh, again, because so much time has gone by and there's been so much humor since then and so much has been built on it, I don't find it as as uproarious as I did the first sure. time I heard it. But the first time I heard it, I, I certainly, it, it, it gives me a warm glow to remember how funny I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, even just doing jokes about driving up and down the street and picking my nose and putting my car up on blocks. I mean, mm-hmm. now, okay, I, we've had 20 years of South Park. I mean, sure. it's not going to be as funny anymore. Yeah. But there was nothing like that then. It was yeah. it, it, it was like oh that's and if you'd seen Second City shows in Chicago, you would have seen some, you know, at, by that point some pretty good rock and roll Second City stuff that was ha- already right. happening uh, after the first generation of really you know the, the, the real smart guys left. Then the, the Belushi's and the Bill Murray's came into Second City and kind of took it over in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But so they they were certainly every bit as pointed and every bit as funny. But it wasn't leaking out to a general general population and hearing it on a on a record. You know, it feels like there's something about putting something on a record that gives it a certain authenticity or gives it a certain yep. sense of authority. So now it's like it's not just some guy being funny up on stage or yeah. or someone doing inappropriate in a sketch comedy bit or some improv bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's there for generations. It yeah. was it was written to be like that. Mm-hmm. So when you when you hear that stuff like that, it, it you 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 get a real uh, sense of entitlement that you were there at the at the invention of it. Right. And that, that's kind of how I feel about it. So some of the bits, I, I also I love a bit that's long, and most people wouldn't even take the time to listen to it. It's uh, the interview with Al Jolson, where Al, oh Al, Al Jolson's still telling the story Holy about shit. the greatest performance that he ever did <laughs> when his manager dropped dead back in the dressing room. <laughs> I forgot about it. Like, and and, <laughs> and it just, it's a blast from the past, and it and it, it just it just it you know it's like it goes on. and the range of stuff. I mean, there's there's the John Belushi doing the uh, doing the the football coach or the the, uh-huh. the running coach for like the little three year old. Yeah, go ahead, kid him. He can take it. Yeah, get up, cry baby. And I, I I've killed him. <laughs> like, <laughs> so upsetting. I love it. Yeah. Um, and though this is yeah, so this is the I guess what they considered the both the best of the stuff had, had the widest range and you know and the most palatable of it too. Yeah. It it. Uh, uh, there, there were some things which even then I think they probably wouldn't have put out at, uh, uh, just because it would the, the world was changing and some language you, or some ideas you didn't necessarily want to have you know memorialized forever sure I, I kind of like uh, about the immigrants thing though like that the, it feels very much like a parody of documentary style yes. radio which is like there's this thing where like we love when people make fun of reality tv as though even reality tv is a new concept but like that th- th- this is there for us to remember this is 40 some years ago yeah. uh, it's the exact same fucking thing oh yeah it's, it's, yeah uh, but that, which is why i think it actually is resonant i want to make sure i put a big chunk of it in this because i think it's perfectly relevant well and that's and that's i think going back to the whole notion of parody is that is that it only works if it's if you if you already are familiar with the form sure 
if if you if they're twisting the form, but you already heard the form, and you hear the marching band, dun, 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 um, Michael O'Donnell. I mean, most of the people he was older than most of them by ten years, so he remembered nineteen thirties radio, uh, yeah. or at least close enough to it, and. So when you hear things like the megaphone newsreel, <laughs> well, I'm still old enough to remember at the very late '60s where you go to a movie theater and there would be a cartoon and there would still and there would be a newsreel. Okay, it actually would be a newsreel. So I think Brian McConaughey wrote. I think he did. did he wrote the, the megaphone newsreel. It was one of the. That, that's also a, 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 a huge fa- favorite of mine. Let me see if I can find it on here. Um, back when like. Megaphone Newsroom. Oh no, that was written by Bruce McCall, who's also a, a Bruce McCall was a wonderful artist, mm-hmm. and he t- to this day he continues to do uh, New Yorker covers. Oh, okay. And he used to do these things, these huge perspectives. He did a whole thing about the 1957 Flashmobile cars, mm-hmm. and they were just they were just gigantic. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> they, like they just literally. They extended like you know like four lanes of traffic across <laughs> like one the kids like sitting at like one corner of the thing like this and and he had like six or seven of these of these of these big big cars, um, but he did he's the one who did the the megaphone newsreel, where someone is it, I don't even know why it's funny but it's just funny where someone is uh, falling down the icy slopes of Mount Krasny Dan, <laughs> <laughs> terror and uh, Mount Krasny Dan. The Megaphone Newsreel marches around the continent, across the seven seas, and right into your face. Yugoslavia. In a ritual as old as the word itself, Yugoslavian mountain men prepare to roll and slide down the face of the 38,000-foot Mount Krasny Dang in search of St. Buster's Button. A somber religious festival becomes even more somber when our megaphone newsreel camera catches one of the brave Yugoslavian mountain men, then loses him, then catches him, then loses him, then finally catches him again in a tumble to tragedy on the steep mountainside. Disaster and sacred religious rituals mix under the brooding peaks of Mount Krasnydang in Yugoslavia. In 2012, Stolen Dress Entertainment brought you the feature-length mockumentary Looking Forward, the story of one 24-year-old man's presidential campaign, 12 years in advance of eligibility, and 16 years in advance of a good slogan. Now, in 2016, in anticipation of an historic election season, Stolen Dress Entertainment brings you the sequel, Looking Forward, 2016. For the next nine months, 14 of the story's central characters will present video blogs, bringing you their side of the story. On the day following the election in November, the strangest, most unorthodox film sequel in history will be completed. Visit LookingForwardMovie.com to see every video as it is posted and to watch the original film for free. Subscribe to the channels you like, retweet the characters, and share your thoughts on the Looking Forward page on Facebook. Looking Forward 2016. One campaign in pieces. I mean, they were having as much fun with the form as with the actual words. Yeah. I think, and... You know, you you know Phil and, and listen to a lot of Firestone Theater. That was something I always loved about them. And some, they basically were playing with the sound of language. I yeah. mean, it almost they came up with meaningless sentences mm-hmm. that sounded like they meant something. Yeah, 100%. and they just took the way we heard the world and kind of blended it up into something that made no sense at all, and yet it just felt totally familiar. For sure. 
it's its own brand of satire because it's hard to see. you could you can put plenty of labels on it where like where obviously fire sign really likes to poke at consumerism yes. or uh, everything anything that shits on us they're mm -hmm. very good at poking at but they do it in this very weird way that like it could be any number of things within like you say this weird melange of like whatever and, the hell and, it's, and, and I think that you know all of these people no matter what they're what the way that the way they approach it there's a famous phrase, and you probably know it from, from improv. It's, it's not a phrase. It's just a rule. It's yes and. Mm -hmm. is, it, is it when you deal with, if you're really dealing with satire, you're always being ironic. You are always saying yes to something that's terrible. Yeah. And yeah. so the worse something is, the smilier you are about it, yeah. the happier you are about it. I mean, even, even going back to kind of, to me, what feels kind of dated, like Mel Brooks sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. He's still doing the same thing. If he's sure. gonna, if he's going to do, he's going to do a, a joke about Hitler. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be dark and horrible. It's going to be a, it's going to be a big production number with women with pretzels on their breasts. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and um, I think people who get who are really good at it understand that uh, the anger has to come out as exactly the opposite. It has yeah. to come out as as enthusiasm. Right. And so when you hear these these cuts. They're all they're all done as if they're doing them for real and they're enthusiastic about mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Even even the coffee commercial, um, he's he's not mad at her. Right. No, that's a magazine. No, that's a that's a table. <laughs> my favorite bit on the whole thing. Again, this is my first. I listened to it twice through, but my first two times listening to it is <laughs> the well-intentioned blues. Which oh, sure. holy fuck! Like it start. I mean. I felt disappointed in myself because my wife was looking and waiting for my reaction when he says, I wish I was a Negro. Mm -hmm. The word Negro has this, the, because it's obviously, even at the time, is not of the time. And it's right. like, clearly, we're, it, I'm out of touch within a, within a sentence of the song opening. But, like, to me, out of touch racism is the funniest, like, to no satirize. Question. And I'm just like, oh, fuck, I, I have to sit down and listen to this thing. Uh, it, I've had, I have a relationship with that word, Negro, mm -hmm. and, and, and uh, some of my black funny friends, too. There is something funny about the word because it's a word that was used by liberals. Yeah. To try to get it right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to say something nice, and you know, and even when the world had passed beyond, I mean, um, the NAACP the is called you know advancement of colored peoples. I yeah. mean, they, they still use a really old term, but that word continues to be funny yeah. because it's in the mouths of well-intentioned people who are getting it wrong. You know, so I wish I yeah. was a Negro with a lot of Negro soul. So I could be true to my ethnic roots while and still play rock and roll. <laughs> if I were a funky Negro eating soul food barbecues, <laughs> I wouldn't have to sing the middle class liberal well-intentioned blues. Yep, and that's exactly right. I mean, that just says it in the title, well-intentioned. Well-intentioned, but fucking dumb. I, it's just and you, so and, and you saw who wrote that, right? Uh, I know that Christopher Guest performed it. I don't know. Doing his best kind of it James was, Taylor. I actually, I always thought that Christopher Guest actually wrote it. I guess I, I'm, I'm wrong. Oh. It was written by uh, Sean Kelly, uh -huh. who was one of the writers of, of, of Lemmings. Oh, okay. And Bill Murray. Interesting. Interesting. Like I said, these, these, these guys didn't have any fear. They, already, they, they were already there. Mm -hmm. You know, they're 23, 24 years old, and they've been Second City stuff. But they're going to take something that in someone else's mouth would be 
um, not horrific, but would just be really uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. And they're and they're going to own it, and they're going to go forward with it. And it's not just the Negro thing. It's like you know, like you know, Indians, mm-hmm. uh, drunken Indians. Yep. And you know, I'm not a Negro. Come on. And and they're also <laughs> playing with the with the the form of folk music. Even that. Yeah. I mean, they're making fun of music that was popular ten years before. Right. <laughs> they slow it down and kind of go, "Come on." <laughs> I love that too. Christopher Guest has been doing that since. I mean, he played folk when it was a thing, oh, sure. and has been crapping on it in his own way, but in uh, in a in a gentle way yeah. since about the same time, I guess. Well, he co-wrote the music to the the uh, the commercial, the the uh, for the the wine commercial uh-huh. uh, that Ann Beats wrote the uh, um, the lyric to, mm-hmm. um, and and he was kind of the go-to. I think he was in Lemmings. I don't think he may have been on the original um, uh, Radio Dinner album. I'm not sure. Okay. A lot of people were. Melissa Manchester was on there. Oh. And 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 of course the one song that I I think you actually I think you actually can't play this this other this one of the songs on there on the radio. I, I was talking about it before. It's it's just it's just too harsh now. Yeah. You know there, there's a there's a show. This isn't comedy, but. Did you ever see the Fantastics ever? The play? Uh, no, I have not. Well, they were in the same kind of problem. There's a... It's a show about two fathers. It's, it's a fantastical show about two fathers who set up a wall between their houses in order to... and, and create a fake rivalry between them or a fake uh, feud so that the one son will fall in love with the girl and, and they will get married. And so the best okay, way to, yeah. best way right. to get them... Right. best way to get them to get married that, yeah. is for us to have a feuding family and you may never see that man again. You know, well, of course... And then, when it's not working as well as they want, they hire this this mythical feature named El Gallo, mm-hmm. who's a big, tall, handsome, strapping sort of guy, and he sings a song called Rape. Aha. Uh-huh. And the song is, is about all the different kind of rapes that you can buy. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh, you can buy a rape on horseback, you can buy a rape... And, and it all depends on the kind... The, the kind of rape depends on how much you want to pay. Sure. It depends on what you pay. The word... Was, the song... The music was written in 1958-59, and it was always assumed to be the word was was a synonym for abduction. It was oh, a, it was a literary term. Ah, okay. And the idea that they were going to let this guy abduct the girl so the son could go and have a sword fight with him mm-hmm. and defeat him and save the girl. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And the song is a wonderfully written song and it's a very famous song. But right about twenty years ago, they began running and, and the show ran for literally thirty years. Yeah. I mean, it, it was one of the longest running shows in New York ever. And they began getting more and more heat about this song, mm-hmm. and they kept trying to rewrite different ways. They kept trying to write abduction, or I, I can't even think the, the different ways they tried to do it. Right. But they could never, no matter what, that that hit the mark. Sure. And there's some material on the radio hour, and certainly on that first album, Radio Dinner, uh, that does that. It hits the mark, but you can't. You probably can't play it on the radio now because it's, it would just be too upsetting, and, yeah. and and rightfully so. Does it work okay in the context of the album, or more in the context of the times? It's the times because the song I'm thinking about was was written because of there were, there were riots in Oakland, uh-huh. and of course at the time Joan Baez was still very much involved in in going around the world with peace activities, mm-hmm. and they were kind of making cruel fun of her for being kind of a distant cheerleader uh-huh. for the people who were actually getting in the streets and having and sure. having political and dangerous and in some cases deadly riots. Mm-hmm. So she was, che- you know, this, this Joan Baez voice 
is cheering on the rioters, but from across the bay. Yeah. In in Marin County, Ooh. you know. Yeah. We're with you all the way, just across the bay. But it the the, the I, I won't say it. I mean, the the, the 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 title is too harsh. Sure. And I don't think the context the context has disappeared now. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's so difficult now to explain why what you're saying is okay. Right. And it right. really isn't okay anymore. Yeah. Uh, so even even I'm, and I don't really care about much of anything. But but I <laughs> even I can see that that would be wrong. Like we were talking about with you know making fun of an actress who's coming back after a stroke. Right. Right. But it's funny. I mean. Sure. I, you know. Yeah. I mean that's that. Yeah. <laughs> it's those those are two things that are hard to reconcile though sometimes. Right. Uh, it, but again, having the context helps. But as you say, there's a point where. It's maybe not comedy if you have to give the explanation you just gave. You know what I mean? Like it's really yeah. hard. It's rough. Uh, I would. I'm obviously going to be interested to listening to listen to it because I know yeah. we're going to be doing that album eventually on the show. Right. Especially I've got one guy who's like, I have heard no National Lampoon. Can you send me all the recordings you have? I'm like, fine. I'll send them all to you, and you'll pick one, and that'll be fun. So I'll be interested to see what he picks and why, mm-hmm. especially if something like that ends up on it. Yeah. You know. And, and I think it's you know there, there have been there were different different. Um, Periods of time for the lampoon. Yeah, and the first period was seventy to seventy-five. That's that was the 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 heyday of the magazine. Yeah, and when they when they put together all these projects and one after another, then you had the magazine began losing people, honestly losing people because they got writing gigs for TV and sure. stuff, and it got sure. much more lucrative. This didn't pay very well to do this kind of stuff. I wish I was a Negro. Lots of Negro souls So I could stay true to my ethnic roots And still play rock and roll If I was a funky Negro Eating soul food barbecues I wouldn't have to sing The middle class liberal Well-intentioned blues Intention blues Intention blues I wish I was an Indian A grown-up soup papoose so when I get drunk on a beer and a half, I'd have a good excuse. I'd be a noble savage, wouldn't ever wear no shoes. And I wouldn't have to sing the middle-class liberal well-intentioned blues. Intention blues. Intention blues. P.J. O'Rourke, who had been sort of an understudy at the, at the magazine, learned how to write funny and was much more of a right-wing libertarian ideologue he took over the the but he was a very hard worker and he took over the editing of the magazine for the last half of the, of the 70s yeah and then as it moved into the 80s the magazine began sort of losing pretty much all of its real voices mm-hmm. and uh, it kept publishing I, I had some pieces published in there in the early 80s awesome and, and, the, and then Maddie wanted to do another show at the Village Gate so we had a show that I wrote some songs for in 1986 mm-hmm. called um, uh the, the Class of 86 Review. Uh-huh. And there, I had three or four songs in that show, and that was at the same facility, which is no longer there, unfortunately. The Village Gate, it was a, it, it was a uh, well-known and, and long... I mean, uh, Jacques Brel had been there. I mean, all mm-hmm. sorts of shows had been there. Uh, Richard Pryor performed there. Uh-huh. But, but uh, you know, the economies in New York made it impossible for it to stay. But in 86, we did that show, and that was the first show I did with Maddie, uh, or, or with The Lampoon. And then... Pretty much shortly, shortly thereafter, about in '89, the Lampoon name company and everything got sold, 
and pretty much the whole they stopped publishing the magazine. The whole thing kind of fell apart. Right. There wasn't much after that. So some of the so so some of the albums that that were done in the late seventies and early eighties, like the I think the Secret White House tapes you mentioned, there's an mm-hmm. album called The White Album or yep. Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. I you know there were people that were trying to kind of keep the fire lit, mm-hmm. but none of the of the real original geniuses were involved in those projects. Sure, sure. And I put myself in that category. <laughs> I, w- I was not one of the original geniuses <laughs> that was involved in the Lampoon. I didn't get involved in the Lampoon organization really at all until until 86. And then about once every seven or eight years, Maddie would call me with some idea for a project. And we would, mm-hmm. we, would do, we, we did a show here a couple of years ago uh, called Sketches from the National Lampoon. But it was hard to find the right sketches to do. Yeah, I, would want, I was thinking about that. Yeah, and uh, and we used a lot. But I, I actually wrote a bunch of new original songs for it, too. That's awesome. So I had about seven songs in that show. Thankfully, the Los Angeles Times said the songs were the best part of the show. So I was, <laughs> there you I was go. Very happy about that, anyway. But it was fun to do. And Matt, I mean, again, we had a great cast, and I enjoy working with Maddie. I mean, Maddie, Maddie is a—he has a, a huge history well before the Lampoon. He was there at the beginning of the entire invention of the credit card business in this country. Mm-hmm. Literally, he was one of the first first um, publicists and promoters for Diners Club in New York City. Interesting. And he, he was the one who signed up hotels, restaurants, and then he signed up Playboy ma- uh, magazine and all sorts mm-hmm. of things and basically invented the credit card business. That's crazy. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't invent himself, but he was working with the guys that were that were doing that, and then yeah. American Express came along and kind of copied their, their business mm-hmm. and, and kind of blew up the whole economy that way. Wow. So he, I just I just really enjoy working with Matty. He's a, he's a, he's a um, he's an old school New York stand on your own two feet business hustler and, mm-hmm. and he's with a great great nose for uh, for hiring people and for talent obviously yeah do you is there is, is there any kind of direct influence that you can see in your own work from the National Lampoon is it obvious to yeah. you yeah um, as a comedy songwriter Structurally, I'm much more aware of Alan Sherman mm-hmm. and maybe Tom Lehrer to some extent, though I tend to be much weirder. And but in terms of subject matter and in terms of being more, I think more fearless. Is that a good word? More fearless, less <laughs> fearful. Um, and and I I don't even know. If, I, mean, I should send you, I should send you some of my work I'm not even sure how much of your even only a few things because you, you sent me a few samples a while back but I, I don't really have it a lot I'll, I'll, I can send you a link I can actually I'll send you a link to a Dropbox where there's a whole bunch of stuff mm-hmm. awesome uh, both, from both of my CDs and, and uh, some of the stuff I've done at Sacred Fools and some of the stuff at Sacred Fools is done for characters yeah. or for theme songs of shows but even then they can be it can be pretty rough I, one guy had me write a song called My Pet Hitler once and, <laughs> and but generally speaking I do I kind of follow Michael O'Donohue's, um, he had a, a phrase one time that making people laugh is the lowest form of comedy. <laughs> and I, I tend to believe that. I think you have to start with a point of view and, you, and there's something that you actually want to say. But then you have to be good at the craft. I mean, you have, sure. to, you have to get it get it right. It's taken me a long time. I think I'm pretty good at it now. But, you know, you just, you also have no one to get off. You've gotten the laugh. You've gotten it done. Mm-hmm. Don't belabor it anymore. Yeah. So yeah, I I tend to write about war and and uh, I've written I guess I've written some songs that are that are sexual or kind of dirty, but that's mainly for theater shows. I don't pick that stuff myself yeah. to do. But um, 
yeah if there's a direct influence it's more kind of spiritual it's like yeah. it's like um, find something that you that either moves you or makes you angry or that you really feel you want to comment about and then you're going to make it funny but don't just write about you know how, how goofy it is you know how the difference between women in New York and Los Angeles. Yeah, right. You know <laughs> things that things that just who cares. You know? That kind of writing, though, and that that is in uh, the most real sense of the word a discipline. There's a lot of patience to that. There, are, there's so much lazy. We had I just had Dan Telferon, who's a great stand-up comic, who mm-hmm. I can tell takes a lot of friggin' time to be funny. Mm-hmm. He takes his obviously if you're a stand-up, you've got a lot of freedom to just fuck around on stage. Right. You can't really do that as a musician as much, even if you're a good improvisational musician. Yes, that's but right. I mean, there's a lot of patience to 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 that. Like, I is it? So, but I, I, is it more satisfying? Do you think to come up, to take your time and just like, oh, I finally got this thing. No, I, I no. at this point, um, I like and and I by the way, I, I don't just write satiric and comedy songs. Mm-hmm. I, I write uh, fake oldies for a music library. Uh-huh. I wrote a bunch of country songs, which is a um, a country musical, which one of its Sacred Fools premiered there is now it's Samuel French and it's getting productions around the country awesome. called Saving Up for Saturday Night and that's a, you know the same the same craft goes into it though there's a lot of I'm very committed to rhymes I'm very you know and mm-hmm. Tom Lehrer once said you know modern pop music was full of rhymes <laughs> you know the, the <laughs> off rhymes and, I doesn't mean that every song has to be rhyming but if you're going to rhyme you, you, you need to be precise about it yeah and so I approach all my writing that way so I and the fake oldies that I write, they're actually I have the same the same attitude towards those. Those get used in TV shows and movies uh, as sure. replacements, or they don't want to pay for a major hit from 1963. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we will produce and write a song that sounds like it was done That's then. Crazy. And, um, and I've, yeah, I just found out I got three songs in some TV shows yesterday. But um, so the craft is always is always there. But I would like to write on deadlines now. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the shows we do at Sacred Fools is called uh, Fast and Loose, where Friday evening some playwrights are given a few words of hint and hints, and then they are supposed to write a play overnight. Oh yeah, and then yeah. It's, it's cast blind in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know Matthew, your your, your friend Matthew Sachs, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He was a big Sacred Fools person, right? For a long yeah, time. Um, it's cast blind in the morning. Uh, the director gets it blind. They have no idea what play they're going to get or what actors are going to have, mm-hmm. and then they. Produ- then they rehearse it and they tech it and they costume it all day long and then they put the show up that night and very often six out of the eight plays are really really good yeah um, they started doing overnight songs as well about five years ago and I've yeah, done exactly. I've done one every single time wow and they are the best songs I've written in, uh, no question yeah that's I've awesome. kept a lot of them and a lot of them are, are not comedy songs a few are uh-huh. but some are um, a little more wry or a little clo- a little more emotional or a little closer mm-hmm. and I'm very happy with them that's awesome and these are ones that are literally you get a, an idea at 8 o'clock at night mm-hmm. and you have to have the song ready to perform the next night wow. a lot of people can do that but it's but it's I'm much I used to brood for weeks about an idea yeah, yeah. think what it, and, and now I just it's almost like a job it's like if they say oh, I need this on Friday mm-hmm. and on Monday I say okay I look at my schedule Okay, I'll I'll write that Thursday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I yeah. generally will get ninety percent of it done, and then I will go back and screw around with it and find better sure. words or better rhymes. But I I uh, am much much more comfortable now, confident knowing that I'm going to be able to get it done, and I don't spend a lot of time brooding about um, subjects or brooding about uh, 
bringing this, getting it done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, as I used to, I used to spend as weeks sometimes, just literally weeks, just yep. tossing and turning about like one stupid line of lyrics. I get I just it. Thought it's stupid. Like, <laughs> why? Why put yourself through that? I know. I've done the same sort of thing, not musically. Obviously, I'm not a musician yeah. at all. But like pushing through, like writing my last book. There are times when I'm like, I would love this to be perfect, but also there might be some perfection in pushing it. You know, absolutely. Happens, well, you know? the perfect is they've said the perfect is the enemy of the good. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. and I still go back sometimes and, and, and will rewrite lyrics that of songs that I started literally thirty years ago. So there it is, part one of the Richard Levinson episode about gold turkey. I hope you enjoyed that. Part two comes next week, of course. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, what I would ask uh, is that, you know, you go to StolenDress.com to check out um, our podcast. And I, I know that's in the, the thing at the end of every episode, every week. So you just hear me say, check out all of our stuff. Well, we do actually have a lot of really fun stuff up there. It's really important to me. Um, I do, you know, we say books because I have two books uh, that, you know, we would love to sell because any little bit helps um, the website go. Help, I mean, I, I own about 20 domains, um, some of which are, are active uh, in, the, in the actual podcast that we use, and um, the hosting is not cheap. So anything you can do to help out, I don't normally ask uh, for money, but we do have a lot of loyal listeners. And it would be great if, uh, you know, you could see fit to just send a little bit our way just to keep the lights on, as it were. You can buy merchandise, uh, a lot of it through Redbubble. Some of it might be through Cafe Press still. But um, And again, you can buy our books. And um, if you want to, just go ahead and, and donate. And uh, stay tuned next week. Uh, some, some more fun stuff with Richard Levinson. Thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. Please visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, and if you like us, give us a five-star rating and a nice review. You can find us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl, Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl, and find everything else at ComedyOnVinyl.com. Vinyl.com.